Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Since his first vintage in 2000, Evan Sardi of Sardi Family Wines has personified the spirit and success of the South African New Wave. Listen to his chat about growing up in KwaZulu-Natal, how he got the job at Spice Root and two tickets for the rugby after a five-minute interview with Charles Bat the new Greek and Italian varieties he's planting to deal with climate change, why he likes to sell his wines to the local butcher, and what he does to get away from all the noise. Hello, Evan. How are you? I'm very good, Tim. Good to hear your voice. It's nice to hear your voice too. I mean, presume you're back in the Swatland after... You've been on a long trip, haven't you? A couple of weeks? Yes, it's been all in all, almost three weeks. It's um, unusually... Long period for me to be off the farm, but, um, you know, it's got nothing to do even with COVID. It's just uh, pre-COVID, I was just very busy. The three years running into COVID, I was very busy with new plantings and new extensions and quite a bit of developments on a number of farms. And uh, so I couldn't travel really. And then COVID came and I obviously couldn't travel then. And so many things have moved and shifted. So I just took took the chance these Three weeks, it hasn't been raining much here in fall, so we couldn't do too much in the vineyard, so I thought, let me just get out of, the, out of here and get things done and come back, and hopefully by next week we'll have some rain. Yeah, and I know everyone was very excited to see you in the market, which was great, really. Listen, loads of stuff I want to talk to you about. I don't know how we're going to fit it into 40 minutes, but we're going to try, right? Um, I'm going to start, I want to start with the beginning, Evan's beginnings. You were born, weren't you, not in the Western Cape, but in KwaZulu-Natal, uh, and you ended up studying viticulture knowledge at Elsenburg College in Stellenbosch. I just wondered, how did you go from where you were born to ending up in the Western Cape? Was wine a part of your life growing up? No, not at all. My, my father worked for the National Railways and uh, he took a transfer to the Cape. And I went to school, a pretty uh, useless school as a, as a youngster. Um, but the one plus point of the school is it had a very strong agricultural um, teacher in especially in the secondary school and I took a liking in that period to the subject and was the only real subject that I truly thrived in Um, Mm. and from that point I basically I wanted to go study marine biology but my dad said listen I mean you're doing so well at agriculture and you have such affinity for the plants and everything don't you want to just go study that and then I basically, I, got, I went for my the inscription in my military service. And when I came back, my dad said, I did you a hell of a favor. I just um, submitted all your stuff for the agricultural quad, which was at Elsenburg. You know? And then I came back, didn't truly want to disappoint my dad, enrolled and, and you know, got to know agriculture much more. And found the vine you know living living on in the boarding school at Stellenbosch and you know having that whole experience with um, the wineries and the winelands and getting to know wine and studying uh, viticulture is one of my subjects and then I basically decided to focus on viticulture and enology and did the three-year course in that. 
I mean, you graduated in 1994, which is a auspicious year for South Africa in all sorts of ways, obviously, politically, uh, with the elections and, and, and Mandela becoming president. But you started off working in a co-op, didn't you, in, in the Romans River? Romans River or Romans Rafir, probably, winery, isn't it? Up in Wolseley. I, I just wonder what that experience taught you as a youngster. No, it was a wonderful experience. I think, you know, when you study, your, your ideals is to work at a small kind of estate where you, you know, can focus on very small productions and, like, finite things. But for me, you know, uh, there wasn't that many jobs around when I started. And when I got that job at Roman Sophia Winery, obviously took the job and I immediately became um, basically... Um, sucked into a system that was so massive you know we made seven million liters in my second year i had full control of the winery and I had to manage 34 people i was 25 years of age at the time and i learned a hell of a lot about organization interaction with people getting work done working in highly strong environments with people under stress and you know i was i i, I actually to this day don't know why in the world they made that appointment? I most definitely wouldn't appoint a 25-year-old to hold that position. <laughs> they wouldn't, you wouldn't have appointed... And I most definitely wouldn't have appointed myself. <laughs> but then you got an even even better job, didn't you? You know, In 1998, Charles Back of Fairview was setting up a new business called Spice Root in the Swartland. How did you meet him and how did you get that job? So I knew Anthony de Jager... I know him quite well that, you know, being the head winemaker there forever and a day. And um, Anthony just told me, listen, Charles bought this farm in the Swartland and uh, he's going to be looking for winemaker. And uh, I came out to see a little bit what the area is about and lay of the land, saw all these old bush vines and everything. So I was very intrigued. Um, at that stage, I was I already started drinking wines from the south of France. I was starting to read up about all these old wine bottlings in the languedoc Roussillon and all of that. So it kind of hit a string and then he said, but come and meet Charles. So I went and go see, I went to go and see Charles on a Saturday morning. The interview lasted about five minutes and he gave me two tickets to the rugby match. And that was about it. <laughs> that was my so he gave you the job and did you get to the rugby match? Yeah. He never asked <laughs> and for it changed a CV. your life, right? Yeah, it changed my life. Never asked me for a CV, never asked for any references. Sat down at a five-minute talk. He said, you've got the job. Here's two tickets to... It was one of the big matches in the Cape. I think it was Western Province against uh, Freestyle. Not uh, against, actually, KwaZulu-Natal at that stage. So, yeah, that's the game. <laughs> and when you were at Spicer, I think it was the first time I met you was there, you made your first vintage of Colimelo, which has gone on to become one of your great wines and one of the great wines of the world, really, in 2000. Was the idea always to do your own thing? Did you always think, I want to make my own wine? How quickly did that idea come to you? Um, I think I would have been quite happy to stay on at um, Spice Root and kind of make my own wine as well, you know, in a much more diminished role and at, at much more reduced quantities. But the, the reality is one evolve. And I actually, I think the... The commercial constraints of running a bigger winery, you know, and Spice Root was growing, um, I would have basically been a hindrance to the project because I'm more interested in like small detail and finite things, you know, in all, in all aspects. And I can't really distinguish between commercial and non-commercial. So I think it's also, it basically comes 
came down to the point that Spicer needed to go somewhere and I needed to go to another place. And, you know, it's at that point that we basically parted ways, you know, and it wasn't easy for me, but uh, it was all good. You know, I think in the four years that I, the four years I spent at Spicer, we produced a number of really, really good wines. Um, yeah. We got a hell of an insight into a region that at that point was mainly dominated by four big cooperatives. And um, mm. there was a, I think, you know, when I, when I left Spicer, I felt feeling good. You know, it wasn't like a sad day. Mm. I was a little bit intimidated by going on my own. Yeah, and, you, and you've stayed on very good terms, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. You started Spicer, or, or you know, sorry, you started Sardi Family Wines with famously 14 barrels, presumably had some wine in them, and, and 9,000 pounds, equivalent of 9,000 pounds in Rand. I mean, that must have been really scary, wasn't it? You just thought 9,000 quid, and here we go. No, no, 9,000 quid. I mean, the South African Rand's weak, but it's not that weak. Um, so <laughs> so we, yeah, we, we basically had no home. No, no, nothing. We basically moved into a garage for a while. A friend of mine in the end said, even you can't live like that with a young family. He moved, he, he, bought, he constructed a new house and said, you can use my old house, you know, for as long as you need to just get your feet um, back up. Another friend of mine borrowed me his pickup. Um, it was really difficult days. I remember... Um, there was two, three times where I had no idea how I was going to pay bills. I even went onto farms to go pick up scrap metal just to hand that in to pay some bills. You know, so it wasn't, you know, I think people see a lot of things, but that, you know, sometimes you must just swallow, swallow your pride and just push through. And that's mm. that was also a very important time for me. And I think something that was it's kind of critical in the makeup of the foundation of what we're about and our foot and, and our wine. So I wasn't really, um, um, I think also being so young, I think your parents stress more than you do yourself because you're kind of in the battle. You can't see really how bad it is ar around you. But uh, I was also fortunate I married the right woman um, mm -hmm. that was all locked into the same dream. So it makes a hell of a difference. I mean, from also from 1995, when you graduated to 2010, you were doing two vintages a year, weren't you? You were going between South Africa and, and normally the, the, the Northern Hemisphere, obviously. And you worked in Austria and California and France and Germany and, of course, Spain. I mean, how important was that, were those double vintages to your development as a winemaker, do you think? Who did you learn most from? I think they pivotal. Uh, for me, the one thing is the, the academical, scientific baseline of what agriculture is about and viticulture and the science of wine but the critical aspect of wine is that it's a cultural exercise you know and I always make the reference to yeah. agriculture being a cultural activity in the land and it needs to get it needs to extend into the bottle sometimes I meet wineries that is incredibly well equipped with tremendous vineyards tremendous wineries tremendous infrastructure um, all the bells and whistles you can dream of and you don't see the wine. You know, the wine's kind of lacking. And nine out of ten times because of the a, a finite absence of a culture in wine. Mm. Um, and I think for me, uh, I was starting to drink all these wines from across the world, and I still do. 
Um, my whole life's been a life of I'm I'm sitting constantly reading about other people's wines and loving to find new wines. That's just extraordinary and it's inspiring to me. So I had to leave to go and work with people around the world to see different philosophies and policies and ideology. But and it's I actually can't single out a single person. I think uh, Gerard Aldinger. The first uh, winery I worked with was Oldinger in Württemberg in the south of Germany, and maybe because it was my first job overseas. But at that stage, working with a 65-year-old every day in the vineyards and see him move and see his love for the vines and the way he moves and how fast he worked. I was 24 and I couldn't keep up with this guy. You know, he was just <laughs> so energized for what he did and he loved the vineyards and you know, they, that winery was 500 years old. The year I went there, he gave the winery at the 500-year celebrations. He gave it to his son. And it, and then he, in the retired form, came back to just work in the vineyards. And just the talks and the impressions and, you know, the days that we had up in the vineyards, it made, it laid such a strong foundation for a 24-year-old, you know, to see that. And, uh, yeah, I have a very high regard for him. He's now an old man, but, you know, we're all getting older. But for me, it was was an incredible moment. But all over, you know, going to the Americas, seeing a whole different approach. Spain, Spain started booming around 2000 heavily. That's more or less when I, when I um, arrived in Spain. And I basically arrived in South Africa in 1994 at the birth of the new South Africa. So... Twice I was maybe lucky in the sense that I arrived in two countries probably at the best possible moment when you can put down your suitcases on the train station. Mm, very true. And, and, you know, you had your own project to where I'll limit uh, in Priora for a while. I just wonder, why, why did you stop? Did you want to focus back on South Africa? Yeah, it, 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 you know, when, the, when my children was younger, my family was younger and the Saudi family was wines were much smaller. It wasn't that difficult, but it got increasingly difficult and more difficult as the children got older. And uh, I remember it, I remember as clear, clear as yesterday when my eldest son, Marcus, turned 12, and I looked at this young boy that's now on the verge of becoming a man. I just realized it's time to come home. Um, you know, you can plant all these amazing vineyards. You can set up the most beautiful domain. You can do all you want. But in the end, it is you need to impart a culture on the next generation. And that that culture can only be instilled by being a lot in each other's presence. So I came back home in 2020, 10, um, limit continued with my old partner, Dominic Uber, and everything is fine. And it's actually um, gone on to become a really, really good domain that side as well. But having been at home for then almost for eight years, I never took a plane. I never truly went anywhere. I was just every day either on the farm working or in the presence of my children. And today I've got my eldest son, Marcus. He's just finished uh, studying oenology and viticulture. My second son, Zander, he's, he's now doing final year and is busy with his practical my daughter is in final year school. Let's see where that goes. But, you know, if I've already got two, two of my children, that's definitely going forward with this. And it, it, it's one hell of a, a feeling to have done all this work and to know that all of this will continue. 
And yeah. anybody that would have met my the the two boys will know, you know, these guys are not gonna muck about. They they're very serious no, about they're good kids. So, you know, I, I think would I have stayed in Spain? Yes. The, well, the life would have had a different um, um, reality to it. But I, I, do, I, I do think that I would not have had the product in, and you can't really say product, but I, I wouldn't have had this relationship with the, with the boys. And obviously we surf together and we do a lot of things together. So I think something was forged that, that was way more important than another domain somewhere else in the world. I think that's that's very true. Tell me a little bit about you know you started with Columella, and your second wine was a was a blended white, which has again gone on to become very famous called Palladius. And I think you made that for the first time in two thousand two. What was the inspiration for that? Because it was famous, it's famously an eleven variety blend. Was it eleven great varieties from the start? No, it's actually. Oh. I did a, a vertical tasting of Palladius two days ago in Amsterdam, and I actually said to the audience, Palladius was probably my problem child, you know, my special needs child. <laughs> it was a much more difficult wine to get to where it is today. Kulumela is kind of this, was this wine that we all know that kid in school that plays for the first team football he dates the prom queen. He gets the best marks in school. He's attractive and he's a hell of a nice guy. You know, almost in and everybody hates way. him, right? No, not really. And everybody yeah. hates him for that. That's a little bit Kulamala. <laughs> but Pilates didn't have that um, start or demeanor about it for for even a day. It was really difficult to forge that wine forward to what it is today. It was. Uh, a much, much more difficult journey altogether. I was, for me, white wine was always white wines from Burgundy. I love the Chardonnays from Burgundy. I love the Rieslings from the Mosel, the, the Grunewald Linus from Austria. All these, what one could typically say, cool climate white wines, you know, with high, higher aromatic form and very linear acidity and all of that. So that was for me, to my mind, always white wine, or at least in the start of my understanding and studying of wine. And then when I started working in Spain in 2000, I started traveling a lot that um, southern part of, of France, um, Italy, the Italian coastlines, and, and obviously the Spain coast, and just tasting wines like Domaine Grange de Père, the Blanc, and mm. tasting um, Remy Padrino's wine at Rock d'Anglade and Gobi's Commissionist and those type of wines in the Villavine of Gobi. And Peter Sissek at the time was working at Claude Argonne and uh, tasting mm. those white blends. And I, I actually just fell truly in love with those Mediterranean white wines. And in some way and form, and having spent time in, in Spain and, and you know, Spain went through this explosion of uh, one and two star Michelin and some three star Michelin restaurants at that time when I was there. Uh, in visiting them and, and just hearing what the chef said in the sommeliers and whatever, these wines just paired incredibly well with food and especially Mediterranean food. Sometimes a very linear, highly, highly fruit packed 
white wine sometimes cuts a little bit against things. And, and sometimes these wines from the Mediterranean, these white wines, with a slightly lower acidity, but more textural and, and um, phenolic um, characteristics actually pay better, purely because of that structural aspects. So I set about to make a white wine here in South Africa. It started with four varieties, became six, became nine, and today is ten. And if it's everything a, that we're working 11. with, uh, <laughs> yeah. today it's eleven. So, but it will one day be more. <laughs> yeah, it's a product okay. of schizophrenia, yeah. Tim. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> T- tell me a little bit about the old vine series because you've been making those since two thousand nine. Some of my favourite wines in South Africa. How did you discover these parcels? Was was Rosa, Rosa Kruger, who's the old vine queen in many ways, was she behind some of them or all of them? And, and you know, how did these little parcels survive in the past? I think a lot of uh, it's a lot of questions, but so I think a lot of the parcels survive. Too many questions, probably. <laughs> no, no, no. But I'll start at a, at a point. A lot of these parcels survived on at the hand of poverty. Now, when when somebody has a little bit of cash and he's got a, there's a little bit of finance on a farm i think there would have been a bigger inclination to replant those vineyards but in some cases mm. some of these growers were so financially um, um pressured that they couldn't even afford mm. a replanting it's sometimes like when you see a really old beautiful building and it's mm. not being renovated because the family or whoever the owners don't have the money to uh, renovate yeah. it, but sometimes that's almost better than a bad new c- capital drive taking the building and ruining it. But sometimes <laughs> yeah, with, uh, we've all seen disastrous renovations. So I think in many cases some of these vineyards that I've met merely survived because there wasn't capital to plant another. It wasn't by mm-hmm. uh, by design. There would be the a couple of instances where it was because of sentiment, where the father planted it and the son didn't want to pull it out because dad's still alive or whatever. There's a little bit of that as well, but definitely not by design. So that, that's on the question how they, desi- they, they survived and whatever. <laughs> then on the development of the Old Vine series, I started making the Mrs. Kirsten Old Vine Shin in, in 2006, um, bottled it up to 2009. The wine was a little bit lost in our winery because we made this white blend from the Swartland and red blend from the Swartland, Kulamella and Palladius. And then this Chenin Blanc from Stellenbosch, which obviously from a structural point doesn't fit into any kind of philosophy. And then at that time, um, knew Russo much better and Russo was starting to do a lot of work on old vineyards and um, she traveled up north. She took me always with and I just met a lot of incredible vineyards in 2008, seven and eight. So in 2009, started making small, very small quantities of these vineyards just to probe into their potential. Launched a small collection of, say, 300 bottles of all these small old vine vineyards in 2009. Mm. And then that response was enormous. And then in 10, still very small, reworked the vineyards, sometimes re-pruning, re-everything, reworking, uh, 
you know, careful renovation, I would say, to those vineyards. And yeah, today it's it's quite a it's quite a big um, project for us. And something that I think, you know, for me the whole thing was we had enough of these vineyards in enough in very many different places that they could become kind of a historic bottling, you know, because it's got all the historic varieties in, in quite historic areas as a makeup. And but it couldn't exist if it wasn't, you know, for us that that showed me very many of these vineyards. So, yeah, but they were much more than the they were much more than the the eight vineyards that everybody knows today. I, I started off with almost 24 vineyards, vinifying them and feeling them and testing them, but basically stuck with the eight best ones. That's interesting. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. But the, the pricing of the wines is interesting. I always think that they're extremely affordable. I mean, remarkably affordable almost, um, particularly when you compare the quality of those wines with some of your peers in the rest of the world. Is that a deliberate policy by you to keep the wines affordable? Yes, it's very deliberate. I think for me, I look at this world with all of its capital drive and whatever. I think when a, anything that loses its principal function will in time die. And uh, I like the idea that my local plumber and my local builder and my local butcher and my electrician, I like the fact that they drink our wine. It's all good and well that a wealthy guy in the United Kingdom drink our wine and a, a financially sound person in Copenhagen and whatever, but if our wines would, would be much more expensive, I think it's fair to say that for most our wines would, would have to be exported. But for me, for wine to be truly balanced in terms of its being, it needs a huge national following. And yeah, I just, I don't want to fly to Helsinki to talk to somebody about my wine. I just want to talk, stand in the row at the butcher and talk to my electrician about one of our wines because he's had it <laughs> last night. And um, yeah. well, didn't you also, also say there's this, this point where, no? No, I was going to say, didn't you also say that you, 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 you buy a lot of wine yourself and you've seen the prices of some of these wines get so expensive that you and I and other people can't afford them anymore. No, very much so. And I think there is an absolute tragedy in that. I, um, I always say, you know, our wines are all allocated. They basically sell out in a week in the year globally and nationally. We sell half of our wine only in South Africa on a mailing list that basically goes out in one day and it's paid in one day and it's done. But hmm. so one could say it could easily increase that price. But at the same token, I've got clients that's been supporting me for 20 years. So I must then go back to them and say, listen, John, Paul and Pete, just because you've been supporting me for 20 years so so steadfastly, I, um, I want to thank you for that. And, and now you can pay double. Hmm. For all your support um, and for having helped us to get this far, you can now pay double. Mm. I think, you know, they, at, at the heart of all of this, and it, it's, it's very worrying in the wine world, is capitalism. I think we all need capital to drive our estates or domains or wine, wine projects forward. But I think one must take a long-term view 
And nobody said that you must build everything and pave everything and fountain and flag everything in three weeks. <laughs> so <laughs> price it accordingly. Yeah, that's very true. Tell, tell me a little bit about your winemaking style. I remember once talking to you about it and you said you compared it to making tea rather than coffee, that you want this sort of slightly gentler approach to wine. Can you tell us a bit more about how that works? Yes, I actually, I did a seminar um, in at Berry Brothers and Rudd two and a half weeks ago that dealt with kind of the evolution of, of the wines of the domain. And um, I actually also sat with Jancis um, a little bit before the tasting. I think there's, there's two currents. The one current is global warming being a, a real thing, and, but I think that is a different topic. But that's definitely added pressure on, on the system and on our wines and stylistically. And I think on, on the other side, we all changed. I think there was a time where everybody was chasing bigger wines and you know, wines that were much more fruit forward and opaque in color and hell of expressive on the moment of pulling the cork. I think the world in very many ways, and that's for sommeliers, wine writers, wine drinkers, everybody has very much matured in the last 20 years and wines can be something completely different from a blockbuster wine right now. Wine can be, I think there's a little bit more poetic um, justice in, in the wine fraternity today. So I'm not in very indifferent to so very many domains in the world that's actually changed um, our approach to wine. I would say from 2000 to 2010, our first decade, we, we extracted the wines more. We used to destem the whites and the reds. Um, the red wines we did pijage, we picked much riper. We were picking between 14 and 15, but for most our wines was around 14.8. Um, Percent alcohol, yeah. yeah. Yeah, alcohol and more extraction and more, more use of new oak. And then when we got to the 10-year mark, we sat down with a 10-year vertical on the wines and we had a review of the winery. I called some a friend of mine that's a sommelier and two of my very old clients, and we tasted through, and we all agreed that the wines were wonderful, and I still love those wines dearly, but we felt that for where we were drinking wines and for where we were a uh, greater volume of elegance and, and ref, uh, freshness and refinement, and linearity would have benefited the wine. So then made a very big change, decided to work more with whole clusters on the reds, about 70%, pick nothing over 14, no pigeage, and no new oak for most. So that was the second decade. And I think to come back to the reference, I think the first decade we made wine like you make coffee, fast, quick, um, solid extractions. And I think the second decade now has been a little bit like making tea where it's more fusions, where you just let all the grapes sit and simmer for a longer time. So we've got the two versions. They, they're very different, obviously. Um, it's amazing how the terroir marks through those two wine styles. But I think our second interpretation is better. My only, my only thing now is with 
I think we might even diminish more the whole cluster percentage in the what I would call the third decade on the reds. But yeah, so the wine styles have changed. The wines are definitely much more uh, refined. They're much more elegant today and maybe fitting to the time we're in right now. Probably. I mean, it's interesting. You alluded to, to global warming and Swartland is a pot dry area and you've been talking about this for a long time now and you've been sourcing and planting grapes from very diverse places haven't you you know greece spain croatia italy portugal north africa even how many have you planted and i just wonder and, and which do you think are showing the most potential i think with total i'm losing track but i think we've planted 24 new varieties um and it's all just part of a very big R&D program to try and plant grape varieties that potentially in time could hopefully define the terroir better and address global warming, but maybe also leverage certain aspects of our terroir that's not been shown. I think people often forget that the old world was populated over a period of a thousand plus years and that the the propagation of vines in variable sites and various regions and countries across Europe happened in a very organic, humane um, mm. manner where people traveled with vines and they tried and trailed and did, um, you know, very many things. The reason people don't plant Grenache north of Avignon isn't because they said um, a thousand years ago Pinot Noir and Chardonnay will be more trendy. They didn't plant Grenache north of Avignon purely because with the spring rains and the, the complicated weather in, in spring in Burgundy, Grenache would never flower. So they probably took Grenache to Burgundy, but it just couldn't yield grapes because it didn't flower. Hmm. So and, and Riesling ended up in the Mosul because it's one of the grapes that's really resilient to um, downy mildew, powdery mildew, it could deal in a natural way with the disease pressures. So the the old world got populated by all these grapes in a very organic manner. The new world got populated on Excel spreadsheets, you know, where <laughs> wineries sit and say, Chardonnay is trending, so we'll plant Chardonnay. Or Merlot selling hot buckets, so let's plant Merlot or mm. Pinot Grigio or whatever. But... The, and the mm. new world, in essence, is only vastly planted to, say, eight or nine varieties. So if you look at the old world, you can't have 4,800 varieties in, in Europe. And lo and behold, in the new world, we've only got eight or nine, essentially, mm. uh, making up 95% of the planting. So mm. my whole thing is a, it's a deal thing where I say that Probably we're not best geared for global warming with the varieties that we've mm. got. And secondly, our terroir has not been defined properly enough purely because of the lack of varieties being planted in very many variable sites. So that's the big uh, drive. And the varieties that's really doing well, Assertica is doing really well. Um, I love Greek wine. I think Greece have gone come... Um, miles and bounds with their wines and I've had very many great wines from Greece. Um, mm. Assertica is doing incredibly well here on the granite soils and also the limestone soils. We don't have volcanic mm. 
where I think would have been also very interesting to plant it here. But on those two soils, the response has been amazing. Then uh, the other Greek grape, Agriogitico, doing really, really well. Insignificant grape, maybe for France, but doing incredibly well here is Picapool in the granite soils and also limestone. Then we've planted uh, um, Grillo and Catarato. They're doing brilliantly. We've planted White Senso. At the moment, it's yielding a little bit too much, but I like a lot of the aromatics um, dimensions that it's yielding. But it's um, unfortunately just yielding too much at the moment. We planted Cunois, Terret Noir. The Cunois is spectacular, absolutely spectacular. Alicante Boucher, also known as um, Garnacha Tantorera, doing incredibly well. Mm. Um, we planted Trincadera, uh, Tanta Francesa, doing mm. brilliant, brilliant, brilliant in the granite soils and the sandstone soils. We've uh, reintroduced um, Hartenberg, did a lot of the work, but we also got some of the selections, the old historic grape that was very much planted in the Cape and was very significant in old grade wines of the Cape Pontac. We've just done plantings on that. Um, there's so many, Tim. Um, and when will we, see, when will we see them in the bottle? I mean, yeah. I think they'll take a while. Um, I can't, I don't see ourselves now going, bottling a lot of these varietals because we want to run a geek show. I think... <laughs> um, I've I've got a small project here where I bottle now every year the best one, and that I release to our our members club here on our mailing list just as an interest. But a lot of them are still blending away. I think we must wait till these vineyards are all ten plus twelve years old before we can mm. engage them in serious wine. Yeah. And the only place where these vineyards will go, and they need to be good enough, is they is they need to go into Kulumela and Palladius. So it's a big ask. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've tasted some of them with you, and they were fascinating. Yeah. I yeah, I think it was the 2015 Assertico, Agriogitica, and those. But I, you, you'll remember even the Assertico at that stage being three years old was just incredible. Yeah. For me, it's almost the highest potential of all the whites. And, and Jordan have made a very good one as well, haven't they? Yeah, they've just bottled the commercial ones. They've probably got the yeah. first solid commercial one. I love the ones <laughs> of Santorini, but I do think at the same token, what we've got here doesn't need to uh, hide in the shade. I think we've got a really good potential with a grape in South Africa. Yeah. So Watch this space. Yeah. Yep. Listen, we could talk for hours. There's so many other things I want to ask you about, but there's one thing I want to finish with, really, is, is just how do you relax and get away from wine? I think I know the answer, and you're going to tell us what you do when you disappear off to get away from wine. Where do you go? Obviously, I try and surf as much as I can. Um, it's a, when you go into the ocean, uh, you, it's obviously not a natural environment, and be it diving spearfishing, surfing, kite surfing. I love all these things. I think you're in a realm where you need kind of all of your senses to survive and to do well or to be able to, to endure. So it, it kind of cuts you off of all of your thinking and whatever. So for me, it's a really good place to go to. 
And if there's wind, I'll kite. Or I'll, um, if there's no waves, we can dive, we can go paddle, we can row. And if there's waves, obviously, we, we'll surf. I also like going camping up on the coast, the middle of nowhere. I've got a great rig that I just hook onto the back of my pickup. And we'll go up and just, yeah, go and live in the middle of nowhere in nature, away from everything and all the noise. So love that. But if I don't have the time and there's no wives, it's close to home. Just sitting around the table, having a good meal with great wine, with beautiful people. I think the world doesn't get any prettier than that. I think that's a very good note on which to end. And I hope I'll be seeing you very soon in South Africa. And we'll be doing just that with a couple of good bottles of wine. We must. We must. <laughs> see you, Evan, and see you soon. Thank you very much. Have a great evening. Well, you can see why Eben is one of the world's leading winemakers. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Sauvignon Blanc legend Kevin Judd of Grey Wacky in New Zealand. Join us then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.